Welcome to my podcast on bagpipe composers and the music of the bagpipe. My name is Dr. Jordan Alexander Key. I'm a composer and a bagpiper, and I started this podcast and its related series of musical recordings to share with you music for this instrument that I love. This is episode two, William Laurie, the bagpiper who dared defy the judges. Given his talent as a performer, composer, and teacher, William Laurie's premature death in 1916 at 35 years old remains one of piping's greatest untimely losses. William Laurie's primary legacy is the few compositional gems that he gave the piping world. Due to his premature death, his output was small, only about 21 tunes, with some debatably attributed. However, nearly all of his works are of high quality and demonstrate great promise as a composer. He had a gift for tuneful and inventive melody, and wrote both insightfully idiomatic as well as creatively forward-thinking music for the bagpipes. Despite his small output, some of his compositions are still widely played and well-known among bagpipers today. Such famous tunes include the 9-8 Retreat March, the Battle of the Somme, popular as the tune to accompany the Highland Dance, the Lilt, and the Competition 2-4 March, Captain Carswell, and the Competition 4-Parted Strathspey, Inverary Castle. Born in 1881, to a slate quarrying family in Balakulish, Argyle, William was initially taught bagpipes at the age of seven by his father, Hugh Laurie. But when his talent became apparent, William was sent for formal instruction to the master piper and bagpipe composer, John McColl of Oban. For the remainder of William Laurie's relatively short life, he and John McColl would remain close, even after McColl moved to Glasgow. Seamus McNeil, in a short lecture given in the 1970s for BBC Radio, notes that Laurie used to visit and stay with the McCalls in Glasgow. Willie Laurie's association with John McCall continued after McCall moved to Glasgow. Laurie used to visit and stay with the McCalls, but his real tribute to his master was composed while the family still lived at Kilbowie Cottage in Oban, the famous John McCall's March to Kilbowie Cottage. Let's listen to this classic 2-4 march from William Laurie to get a taste of his style and prowess as a bagpipe composer, even at a relatively young age.
By his early 20s, William was already teaching the bagpipes and was successful in doing so. For a number of years during the summer, he would spend a couple of months teaching Kilmore, also known as Piebrock, under the auspices of the Piebrock Society. Being close in age to many of his pupils and having a close relationship with his own teacher, William forged close relationships with his students. An interesting story that speaks to the kind of piper and composer that Laurie was comes to us from one of his students, with whom Laurie traveled to piping competitions during his early 20s. This is the story of William Laurie at the Lochaber Gathering, as told by Hugh MacDonald, 1889-1975, with interviewer Dr. Margaret Ann Mackay, born 1945. Hugh MacDonald was born and brought up in Tyree, and was a joiner, builder, and undertaker. The interview was taken on July 3, 1974, when Hugh MacDonald was 84 years old. This story is about Hugh's trip to the Fort Williams Highland Games in 1903 with his bagpipe tutor, William Laurie. They traveled on one bicycle with two sets of pipes. Hugh played early in the competition because he was only an amateur at the time. William Laurie, an advanced piper, competed later in the day. This audio recording has been edited somewhat from the original since Hugh, at this time, was very old and had lots of difficulty finding, clarifying, and choosing his words. To help in our understanding of his story, I have taken liberties to redact in places some mumbling and confused utterances. I am very appreciative, however, for Hugh MacDonald's telling of this rare story about William Laurie. The recording begins with Margaret asking Hugh about where William had learned piping. Hugh spent some time pronouncing that William learned piping from John McColl without much further detail, and then, without prompting, he begins a story about a Piebrock William had learned and played in a competition they attended together. We enter the conversation when Hugh begins describing a book of shorthand bagpipe music that William had made for himself. He got a book anyway, mm -hmm. a shorthand book in music, pipe music, mm -hmm. and it was to the Piebrocks. He got the knack of the Piebrocks mm -hmm. that they hadn't got, and perhaps haven't got yet. Perhaps there may be a few of these books, but they're very, very scarce anyway. Hugh then goes on to describe how William showed him the Piebrock in his book. Hugh implies that William is, quote, going to make his own law, end quote, about the performance of Piebrock, likely contrary to whatever rule the competition upholds. He says to me, well, Hugh, look at that. I'm going to play that Piebrock. I'm going to make my own law. So, on their way to the games, William plans to perform an unconventional Piebrock, or a Piebrock in some unconventional fashion, likely knowing that this will forfeit him any chance of winning the competition. Hugh then goes on to describe the comical way the two of them traveled to the games that year. He went to Fort William Games. We both came from Balakulis to Fort William on one bicycle and two sets of pipes. <laughs> We were treated there very kindly with friends that both of us knew, a Mr. MacDonald and a Mr. McIntosh. The next portion of the story is a bit muddled, though understandable. If you are watching the accompanying video of this podcast, I have provided subtitles that help clarify what Hugh is likely meaning to say. In this part, Hugh is merely describing the course of the games. Hugh plays first, since he is in the amateur league. After Hugh performed, he waited and watched many others perform in anticipation of William's performance, which was much later, since William was in the advanced league. We passed the time there till the time came on, got that the games part. I had a very good set of pipes. Oh, very good set of pipes. I was the, the, the uh, amateurs. They called the amateurs first to play first before the professional. 
went up and played, and a whole lot of them, one after the other, went off and played, and we were just waiting to hear Laurie. There was 26 of us anyway, and we had to wait quite a while. After the amateur competition, William was first to be called for the professional competition. Who was called first up but Willie Laurie? Pipe, Pipe Corporal Laurie. So he was up and he plays his beaver. And uh, he stopped, and when he finished, he saluted them, and oh, he was called across. And the judge said to him, what made you play the peeber that way? He says, that's not the way it's written, and what you got for to play? In response, William said to the judge, I played the peeber, gentlemen, as I should play it, and as it should be played, and I don't want your prize, he says. According to Hugh, William then marched off. However, the judges called him back. They talked for a while, and then William came away again. So he marched off, and they called him back again, and they talked, and then he came away. Hugh had no idea what they had talked about, but if it was anything like the times I have disagreed with piping judges at a competition, they were likely reproving him for his disrespect. And if William was anything like me, he was likely kindly arguing his case against the aesthetics of the judges. Hugh continues his story. When uh, things were finished, who got the first prize for Peebra, he went up with a red flag. Oh. Just the space and reels. Mm. That was the way he got up. So, apparently, Laurie received a penalty for his performance, but one in the Strathspey and Reel competition. Margaret then asked Hugh, And what was the difference in the uh, way he was playing the Peebra? Hugh, however, does not give much of an answer. Oh, a lot of difference. Oh, secret, secret, secret. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Margaret does not press him further, but rather asks about the rules of the competition itself. How was it that that, that way of playing that was established for the, for the games and so on came into being? Margaret asks, who was it that decided on this set of rules? But Hugh interrupts the question. He responds, but does not offer a substantial answer but gives us these words. Who was it decided on this set? Oh, perhaps the, the, the pipe majors that were there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the pipe majors that were there. Yes. They would say, well, we want this and we want that. Yes. The books themselves, you see, all the peepers are in them, and I might have this book and he might have the other book. So they just get on like that. And what year was that? Do you remember what year? You see... What age would I be then? Call it 15. 15 from 85. 85 coming September. And you were 15, about 15 when yeah. this took place? Yes, I think so. That's about as far as I remember. I was away to South America in 1913 or 14. Oh, it would be 10 years before. 1993 19, or so. Oh, that's more like it. Mm -hmm. That's more like mm -hmm. So... Perhaps what Hugh is saying is simply that the rules are established by the whims of the judges and whatever is the trend of the day. We might assume this since this is still largely how piping competitions are judged. There are trends in performance practice. There are established and unquestionable traditions. There are judges who like to hear certain things and who do not like to hear other things. Generally, if you want to be successful in such competitions, being good is not enough. One usually has to play the game of judge-pleasing and trend-following, playing the tunes that are popular, and playing them the ways people like to play them, in that time and place. There is very little latitude in competition to be interpretive or innovative, no matter how well executed, 
an unfortunate reality that William Lorry seems to experience, even 100 years ago. So, what was this Piebrock William Lorry played? We will likely never know. It certainly could have been a traditional Piebrock, which he sought to play with his own interpretation, rather than the classical interpretation. Or, this Piebrock could have been his own composition, the playing of which, in competition, would have been as heretical as playing new compositions in Piebrock competitions is to this day. Either way, his choice was a challenge to the institution of classical Scottish bagpiping, it would seem. William Laurie was known to have written one Piebrock, which he became well known for. The tune was titled, The Lament for Lord Archibald Campbell. This tune, unfortunately, is lost, and the only substantial mention of it we have is from William Laurie's obituary in the Open Times. Dale D. Brown, a bagpipe researcher, asks a question many musicologists have asked about many other composers throughout music history. Dale writes, quote, How can a masterpiece of one of our master composers simply fall into a black hole? It seems incomprehensible to me that a Piebrock, by a recognized master player and composer, could just drop out of sight, and no one knows of it, or has even heard of it. Yet this Piebrock is mentioned quite prominently, in his obituary, as being a masterpiece of the day. End quote. Well, Dale, this is not an uncommon tragedy. Many works by many composers are lost. I myself lost a bunch of my own compositions in 2013 when my computer was stolen. Fires, earthquakes, wars, and simple disregard have long been the monsters that eat great masterpieces. Unfortunately, this is likely the case here particularly when we think of the ravages the two world wars wrought in Europe subsequently. Interestingly, there are rumored papers that belonged to Laurie in the library of Inverary Castle, where he was an employed piper in residence for a time. The Piebrock from Hugh's story and the Piebrock mentioned in Laurie's obituary might still yet be found in moldering archives. Even recently, works by Johann Sebastian Bach have been uncovered. There is always the potential for undiscovered gems lurking in the recesses of libraries and forgotten records. No one, to my knowledge, has yet looked at or gained access to these rumored records. I hope someone in Scotland, preferably a piper, will gain access to Laurie's papers at Inverary Castle, should they be there. Who knows what treasures potentially lie in wait. During these early years in Balcoolish and in the Glencoe region, Laurie, in an effort to continue developing his bagpiping skills, joined the Argyleshire Volunteers. In his radio lecture, Seamus McNeil draws our attention to William's tutelage under Pipe Major George Ross, who became the Pipe Major of the Argyleshire Volunteers in 1905. It was not hard to find a teacher of piping in most parts of Argyle at that time, and to help further his playing, Willie Laurie joined the local company of the Argyleshire Volunteers. In 1905, George Ross, formerly of the Black Watch, came to be Pipe Major of the band, and to celebrate this occasion, Laurie composed a tune for him. This one seems to us nowadays to be a bit overloaded with notes and grace notes, and doesn't have the free-flowing melodic line of his later compositions. But it's interesting to see how he was searching for originality in his work. Personally, I don't find this tune as overloaded as Seamus finds it. I have a fondness for an overabundance of grace notes in bagpipe music. Truthfully, I find this tune to have relatively few grace notes. However, I like this tune for its abundance of low G, the lowest note of the bagpipe. This gives the march substantial weight and gravitas. Let's take a listen to the first two parts of Pipe Major George Ross's Farewell to the Black Watch.
During this pre-war period in his twenties, William Laurie was fortunate to find regular employment as a piper to a number of aristocratic families in Scotland, many of whom, still in the early 20th century, would have had a resident piper. Again, Seamus McNeil gives us a glimpse into this peaceful and productive time in William Laurie's life. Willie was fortunate to find employment as piper first to Lord Dunmore, then to MacDougall of Lunga, and eventually he gained the post which John McCall had previously held, piper to MacDonald of Dunach. While there, he went out one evening with his practice chanter to a little glen on the estate. To his astonishment, when he began to play, he heard an echo coming back. So he tried a little phrase, and the echo came back, and then he played the balancing phrase, and the echo gave, and then he tried, and so the tune Mrs. MacDonald of Danach was born. Let's listen to the first two parts of Miss MacDonald of Danach. By 1912, William succeeded George Ross as pipe major of the famous 8th Argyleshire Battalion of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, more commonly known as the 8th Argyles. It was during this role as pipe major that William certainly wrote his two Argyleshire marches, one a 4-4 march and the other a 3-4 retreat march. Both are simple tunes, but offer some lovely gestures. To accentuate these tunes, I have provided counterpoints to the original melodies by Laurie.
At the outbreak of World War I in 1914, Pipe Major William Lurie was among the first to volunteer for active service, and following a period of training at Bedford in England, he went to France with the 8th Argyles. Little is known specifically about William Lurie's time as a Piper of War, but we do have some insights about the experience of a Piper during the First World War. Philip Gibbs writes in his essay, The Music of Battle, about his year serving as a war correspondent on the Western Front. He recalls having frequently heard the music of the pipes on the battlefield and in French and German towns wherein he was stationed. Gibbs writes, The call of the pipes was a sound which belonged to the great orchestra of life in the war zone, rising above the deep rumble of distant guns, traveling ahead of marching columns up the long roads, wailing across the shell craters of that desert which stretched for miles over the battlefields of Flanders, and coming to one's ears like elfin music through the dead woods above the Somme. Before every big battle, the scurl of the pipes went with the traffic of war and guns surging forward to the fighting lines. For in every big battle there were Scottish troops, and their pipers played them onto the fields of honor, and played them out again when their ranks had been thinned by heroic sacrifice. This music had an inspiring influence, not only on the Scottish troops themselves, whose spirits rose to the sound of it when after long marching their feet were leaden on the hard roads and their shoulders ached to the burden of their packs, but also on English troops who were in the neighborhood and on their way to the same battlegrounds. I love Gibbs' wordsmithing when he describes the pipe music as, quote, coming to one's ears like elfin music through the dead woods above the Somme, end quote. This brings us nicely to one of William Lorry's most famous and widely played works, The Battle of the Somme. This relatively short work is tuneful and accessible to even novice pipers. There are some questions about whether or not William actually wrote this tune, but numerous friends and contemporaries have claimed that William wrote this tune while serving in the military during the First World War. To honor William Lorry as one of my favorite bagpipe composers, I have composed an additional two parts to this typically two-parted tune. Here is the four-parted 9-8 march, The Battle of the Somme.
Gibbs offers a specific recounting of an encounter with the Argyles, the 8th Battalion of which William Lorry was serving in as Pipe Major. Gibbs writes that, It was to the tune of the Campbells are coming that the Argyle and Sutherlands went forward, and that music which I had once heard up the slopes of Stirling Castle, when the King was there, was heard now with terror by the German soldiers. The pipes screamed out the charge, the most awful music to be heard by men who have the Highlanders against them, and with fixed bayonets and hand grenades, they stormed the German trenches, where there were many machine gun emplacements and dugouts so strong that no shell could smash them. What Gibbs gives us in these words is likely the experience William Lorry, as well as many pipers and pipe majors, experienced during the second decade of the 20th century. Their life was difficult, and just as danger fraught as any soldiers, since the pipers often led the soldiers in march from town to town and from trench to trench. The shells of tanks, grenades, and bomber planes were indiscriminate between combat soldiers and non-combat pipers. Many pipers fell to an exploding artillery alongside armed soldiers. Gibbs provides one comical story about the pipes during World War I, and how they often featured as entertainment for the Scottish and British soldiers stationed in France. The French, however, did not find the music quite as palatable. The story Gibbs offers is worth excerpting in its entirety. Gibbs writes, The pipes of Scotland sounded in many villages of France and Flanders. They were played not only in the roads and fields, but often at night in farmhouses where Highland officers had their messes, or in cottages where some battalion headquarters were established, or in old houses within city walls where there was a feast or a guest night. It was my privilege to spend some of those evenings when down the long table in a narrow room the pipers marched, solemnly standing behind the guest's chair and playing old dances and marches of Bonnie Scotland. Then the colonel would offer the pipe major a glass of whiskey, which he would raise high toasting the health of the officers in Gallic. After that, on many a good evening in a bad war, the tables would be cleared, and the young officers would dance and ate some reel, with laughter, stimulated passion, and shrill cries of challenge and triumph which stirred the stranger's soul, where the pipers themselves would be asked to give a dance, and in stocking feet, on bare boards, dance as lightly as a gossamer, and as nimbly as Nijinsky the Russian, though big, brawny men themselves. In small rooms, the music of the pipes was loud, too loud for any but Scottish ears, and it was hard on a French padre who was trying to sleep upstairs in one small cottage, with thin walls and cracks between old timbers of the ceiling, while downstairs, late into the night, the pipers played merrily for those who would fight in the next battle near at hand. The effect of such pipe music within four walls was prodigious on a French officer whom I took one night to the mess of the 8th and 10th Gordons. The full pipe band marched in as usual, and I saw my friend open his eyes wide and stare with amazement at this apparition. When they stood behind his chair playing lustily so that the very glasses quaked on the table, he became very pale, and after the second Strathspey, I saw him collapse in his chair in a dead swoon. The Gordons thought this a fine tribute to their pipers. They enjoyed the incident justly, though full of consideration for the French officer. He explained to me afterwards the symptoms that overcame him. I felt, he said, enormous waves rolling up to me and passing over me, my heart beat wildly, and vivid colors rushed past my eyes, then I knew no more. Nothing would induce him to suffer such musical agony again. Gibbs' story makes me think of William Lorry's 6-8 march, the cellars of Autuil, Autuil being a French commune, which is a level of administrative division analogous to a municipality or township within a county. Autuil is within the county of Somme, 
Likely Auteuil is where William was stationed for a time while in northern France. The town was held by British troops from summer 1915 to March 1918, when it was captured by the German offensive. Most of the original town was ruined by artillery bombardment well before the German recapturing in 1918. The cellars of any town were likely the safest place for refuge during war times, due to frequent air raids and shellfire. Thus, such cellars were likely where soldiers, pipers, and military administration slept and dined. Perhaps it was in one such cellar, in Autuil, that William experienced such a festive evening as described by Gibbs, eating and drinking around a table of Scotsmen and Frenchmen, playing rousing Strathspeys, jigs, and marches, like his own composition, The Cellars of Autuil. When you listen to The Cellars of Autuil, imagine such a scene of wartime merriment in a stony, damp basement of an old European township. In his essay, The Pipes and the Everyday Life of the War, Arthur Federless offers numerous small tales of hearing pipes while serving during World War I. In his essay, Federless gives us a few eloquent words concerning the nature of the piper amidst the soldiers. Federless writes, 
No memories of the Great War will ever be complete without the recollection of the pipes, for they are unquestionably the finest battle instrument ever created. They mourned with us in hours of sorrow. They cheered us in hours of weariness. They played gaily in hours of rest and merriment. What Federalist points to here is the fact that for the Scottish, British, and Irish troops sent to the continent during the war, the pipes offered them a brief passage home, a moment of reprieve and joy, a vehicle to mourn and reflect, and the encouragement to press forward despite fear, despair, injury, weariness, trauma, or hopelessness. Along those war-torn roads, the pipes of war played, month after month, year after year, from one battle to another, in front, behind, and beside every fighting man. This instrument and its players, William Laurie among very many others, were an invaluable part of the war effort. As we listen to a piper's marches, be them a simple 4-4 march or a virtuosic 2-4, we should consider the potential weight of that tune. Surely, nearly every 2-4 march we have from William Laurie marched generous and brave men, including Laurie himself to their certain death. Federalist brings our attention to the same contemplation. He writes, Beat on drums, let the pipes play and the banners be unfurled for every triumphal march that shall be. But when the marches are played, let us never forget that every march has grown more glorious by the war and the blood of the men who fell, that every march has woven around it a thousand memories of life and death, of hardship of danger and of victory. In days to come, we will remember. To battle we went by that march. To Lungaval we went by that march. And from Luce we came by that one. And for every battle march that the pipers play, we know that a million feet and more have marched to its song. Given Federalist's words, as we listen to Laurie's bold 2-4 march, Captain Carswell, we might imagine the bold and tireless marches of hundreds of miles, and often more, that Scottish regiments, led by equally tired but determined pipe bands, took across the Western Front to their next battle. With the Pape of Glencoe, we can imagine the soldiers of the Argyleshire regiments fondly remembering scenes from their homes in and around Glencoe, homes which they knew they will likely never see again. These marches, while they sound festive and cheery to us today, have within themselves a deeper melancholy that is often overlooked. With this in mind, let's take a moment and listen to the entirety of William Laurie's Captain Carswell, perhaps my favorite tune by this composer.
The appalling conditions of trench warfare, combined with prolonged piping on long marches, took their toll. William became seriously ill and was returned to England, where after a few months, despite valiant efforts by medical staff, died in an Oxford hospital at the age of only 35, on November 28, 1916, sending a shockwave of sorrow through the piping world, both at home and abroad. William's obituary from the Oban Times on December 16, 1916, captures the spirit of one of the most talented pipers and bagpipe composers of his day. I will excerpt some of the most interesting parts of the obituary. When very young, Pipe Major Laurie joined the Balakulish Volunteers, and to improve his playing, he studied under champion piper John McColl, being one of his cleverest pupils. He was soon promoted, and four years ago he was appointed Pipe Major of the County Regiment. He was for some time piper to the late Earl of Dunmore, and also piper to the late Colonel MacDougall of Lunga. He won first prize at all the principal Highland gatherings in Scotland, among the best pipers of his day. Pipe Major Laurie composed many tunes, Peabrock's, Marches, Strathspeys, and Reels. His lament for the late Lord Archibald Campbell is considered to be a masterpiece of the day, and he played it before the Ducal Party at Inverary Castle a few years ago. Many throughout the country and across the seas will learn with regret the passing away of this well-known champion of the national instrument. So concludes the excerpted obituary. The extant tunes by William Laurie are relatively so few that I can easily list them here for those watching the video component of this podcast. I would like to highlight a few of his pieces outside his biography. First, let's take some time and consider his famous Glencoe triptych, as I call them. The two four marches, the Braes of Brecklet, the Pape of Glencoe, and John MacDonald of Glencoe. All three tunes are classics from William Laurie and have persisted in the repertoire since the early 20th century. What draws me to these pieces is their musical portrayal of Glencoe. The Braes of Brecklet and the Pape of Glencoe's melodies, and John MacDonald of Glencoe's abundant use of the doubling embellishment technique, all sonically demonstrate William's keen fondness of the landscape of his home in Balakulish by Glencoe. The Braes of Brecklet is a lovely tune in A pentatonic, barring a few scattered passing G naturals as 32nd notes. Braes are a steep hillside, and Brecklet likely refers to the Brecklet Trail in Glencoe. I imagine the ascending and descending arpeggios in this march are designed to reflect this steep hike through Glencoe on Brecklet Trail. Let's listen to the second part of this tune, which features the most prominent use of descending arpeggios. The Pape of Glencoe also uses melodic devices to portray the steep trail through Glencoe. The Pape of Glencoe itself is a geological landmark in Glencoe, around the lower end of the glen in Loch Leven. Despite its modest height, it is a sensational viewpoint and gives a short but steep and rough hillwalk, aspects of which 
can be heard in the stair-like melody of the eponymous tune. I particularly think of the final variation of the piece, which has a lovely descent across the entire ambitus of the bagpipe scale, from high A to low G, via a variety of alternating melodic stair-like leaps. Let's listen to the third and fourth part of this tune. The third tune in the Glencoe triptych, John MacDonald of Glencoe, also uses musical devices to portray the eldritch and timeless landscape of Glencoe's ancient hills and dales. Through the use of abundant doubling embellishments, William creates a wonderful echo effect on the pipes across his melody. When one plays this march at the slow end of an appropriate 2-4 march tempo, we can more clearly hear the effect William creates. It is almost like we are hearing the echo of the melody coming back at us from across a valley while piping atop one of the hills of Glencoe. Enjoy this tune slowly, imagining yourself listening to the echoes of the pipes heard across Glencoe's austere, otherworldly valleys.
In addition to the Glencoe triptych, William's lesser-known two-four march in A pentatonic, Willie McColl, is also worth noting, particularly for its lovely use of withheld notes. This is a technique we discussed previously with the works of Peter R. McLeod Sr. William Laurie does not use this technique abundantly in his handful of works. However, here it stands out. This whole work is in A pentatonic, avoiding the use of high G or low G natural on the bagpipe scale, as well as D. The D, however, makes its first and only appearance in the antepenultimate measure of the final part. Its arrival is quite remarkable. Let's listen to the whole of this march to get the full effect of the D's arrival, which in my own edition of this work I have slightly prolonged to add to the impact of this marvelous implementation of a clever compositional technique.
Beyond his two form arches, I also want to highlight William Laurie's singular, nearly unperformed jig, the Gurkha's Joy, since it not only demonstrates the rich compositional material that Laurie's music still provides us, but also offers us another insight into the life and wartime experiences of Laurie himself. First, let's back up about a century for a brief moment to learn what a Gurkha is, if you don't happen to already know. Between 1814 and 1816, the British East India Company fought a war against the city-state of Gorkha in present-day western Nepal. Though the British were ultimately victorious, they were sincerely impressed by the fighting prowess of the Gurkha soldiers. Under the terms of the peace treaty with the Gorkha city-state, substantial numbers of Gurkha soldiers were permitted, or perhaps forced, to volunteer for service in the British army. The regiments of Gurkha soldiers would continue to have a presence in the British army well into the latter 20th and early 21st century. They became the finest soldiers in the British Indian Army. By the time of the First World War, the Gurkhas were a well-established part of the British Army abroad in India. There were 10 Gurkha regiments prior to the outbreak of the First World War. However, they had only had a presence in the European stage one time, in 1878, in their century of service to the British Empire. By 1914, however, the Gurkha were called to Europe and the Mediterranean since it had become apparent that the British Expeditionary Force was in desperate need of rapid reinforcement to prevent it from being outmaneuvered. The Indian Army thus sent the Indian Expeditionary Force to France in September and October of 1914, containing a number of Gurkha battalions. The Indian and Gurkha troops that were sent to the Western Front faced not only one of the worst European winters on record, as well as the dangers of modern mechanized trench warfare, but also cultural and lingual differences. In spite of these difficulties, the Indian and Gurkha troops rose to the occasion and managed to stabilize the British Western Front long enough for conscription of British soldiers to allow replacement of Indian and Gurkha infantry units in 1915. By the end of the First World War, about 100,000 Gurkha soldiers had served, with over 20,000 casualties. Given the title of Laurie's jig, the Gurkha's Joy, we must assume that Laurie had some encounters with the Gurkha regiments during their time in France between 1914 and 15. In fact, it is known that the Gurkhas themselves had regiments of bagpipers at this time. A surviving image of one such bagpiping battalion of Gurkhas from World War I is given on the video component of this podcast. Perhaps this tune, The Gurkha's Joy, was inspired by music actually composed and performed by one of the Gurkha bagpipers. We will never know. However, such an encounter seems quite likely, whether with or without Gurkha bagpipers. The jig itself is not so remarkable, but it is nonetheless charming. What I find most wonderful about the tune is its simple idiomatic style. Given its robust form and archetypical gestures, it lends itself excellently to further elaboration. In this performance of the jig, I have composed four additional parts to make this an eight-parted jig. While Laurie's four original parts stand on their own, I think the additional four show well how Laurie's simpler writing, through its simplicity, lends itself well to further elaboration by the performer. Perhaps you will find even greater joy expressed in the rapid and more virtuosic variations of this extended version of the Gurkha's Joy.
William Laurie's bagpipes are now on display in the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders Regimental Museum in Stirling Castle, along with his service medals and the gold medals he won at Oban and Inverness. He left behind his wife, Una, and three children, who were all aged under five when he died. William's son Ian became a piper and a bagpipe composer, and also joined the military in World War II. Like his father, Ian joined the Argyles. Ian's own son, Willie Laurie, also became a prolific musician and composer for the accordion. I plan to cover the pipe music of William Laurie's son and grandson in a different posting. Upon William's death, the famous Eiley bard, Duncan Johnston, composed a lament for his memory. Duncan Johnston and William Laurie had met during the war and had become friends in the trenches. Seamus McNeil shares with us the story of Duncan's and Laurie's meeting in his radio lecture from the 1970s. He also shares his own story of first premiering this tune after Laurie's death. During this encounter, Seamus speaks about this tune with famous contemporary piper Peter R. McLeod Sr., whom we covered in the previous podcast. Let's listen to this story. The late Duncan Johnston, the Isla Bard, was a sergeant in the Eighth Girls, and he used to tell an interesting story of meeting Willie Laurie in a shell hole one night. While they sheltered from the barrage, they exchanged tales of their respective homes. And before they parted, Duncan offered to write a song for Willie Laurie, and he in turn promised to compose a tune for Duncan. The promises were duly kept, and this march was inspired by home thoughts from abroad in a shell hole in France. That tune was composed shortly before Willie Laurie's death, and so for a long time was not well known. The first time I played it, Peter MacLeod Sr. was in the audience, and afterwards he asked me where the tune came from. In an attempt to get his reaction, I said it was a new tune that I'd picked up. No, he said, it's not that. It's not one of his best tunes, but it's composed by Willie Laurie. I can tell by the structure of it. Now, let's listen to the tune itself, perhaps one of the last William Laurie ever wrote. Here is Duncan Johnston.
Duncan Johnston ultimately composed a Gaelic lament upon William Laurie's death, fulfilling his promise to his friend. I cannot hope to read the Gaelic version of this poem, but you can find performances of the lament in Gaelic online by William Laurie's descendant, Gregor Laurie, who is a highly regarded Gaelic singer and bard today. I will, however, read an English translation of this poem by Duncan Johnston to conclude our podcast. If you are watching the video component of this podcast, I will display images of the Balakulish War Memorial statue, which commemorates the men of Balakulish and Glencoe who fought and died in the Great War from 1914 to 1918. You'll notice William Laurie's name on the list of victims of war. Many regard the kilted figure of this statue to be based on the likeness of William Laurie. Here is a lament for William Laurie, Balakulish. Naught will be heard in the glen, but a faint swirling cry, the rock rumbling from the highest peaks, and the sigh of the wind at the shore of the narrows, like the keening of the hysteric mourners. You were the best of the pipers, and prince among musicians. Tis no word of a lie, you of the fine bright hands. It is a terrible loss indeed, that you were laying in the earth, my devastation and my ruin. My cup is full of sorrow. Curse on the one who brought the news. Forever I am wounded by the truth he brought. The handsome, smart young man who would play so flawlessly. The great pipes of engraved drones we shall never see again. When you were marching to the trenches and the enemy threatened attack, often you lifted our spirits and moved our feet when one would hear with power the sweet cry of your pipes. Farewell forever to you, most musical and talented, so placid, gentle, kind, and mild. When the shadows disappear and we come into his presence, we will meet again in heaven. If you have enjoyed this podcast and any of my other episodes and series on bagpipe music and composing for the bagpipe, please consider supporting this effort. You can donate to this podcast on Patreon at https colon slash slash patreon.com slash Jordan Alexander Key, Key spelled K-E-Y. There you will find all the podcasts, previews, updates, and free educational materials I have created. Those who subscribe for $15, the Kiel Moore tier, will also gain access to my present and future bagpipe music editions and educational materials. As part of this episode, I have created the first complete edition of William Laurie's Extant Works, which will be available on Patreon for those in the Kiel Moore tier. All of Laurie's 21 known tunes are given in clean and elegant notation from my own musical typesetting. Shorter tunes have been extended for pipers wishing to play longer versions of famous tunes like Battle of the Somme, or A.A. Cameron's Strath's Bay, and some tunes presently unavailable in bagpipe notation are now made available with thoughtful and evocative grace noting. Along with the music, I have given my biographic essay on the life and music of William Laurie, with a gallery of available historic images. Please consider donating to this educational and artistic mission. Thank you, and stay tuned for more.